Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, we have just finished up a month of apologetics. Apologetics is a term that refers to uh, the reasonable defense of the Christian faith. And in, in a very real way, this series, Bizarre Bible, is an extension of apologetics. Um, because one of the, the biggest roadblocks to faith for modern people is the actual content of the Bible. It's, it's like the actual stories that you find in it. And so you've heard it many times, I've heard it many times, where someone might say, oh, you're, like, you're a Christian. Have you actually read your book? Have you read the Bible? Have you seen the stuff that's in it? Um, and you sort of, you know, you're a Christian, so you go, yeah, yeah, I've read the Bible, and yeah, you're just misunderstanding God, you're not, you're not looking at it right. But then if you're honest, many times, for some of you, you've been reading your Bible, and you encounter something, or a story, and you go, I, I don't know what to do with that. Like, and sometimes there's this deep emotional angst that's like, dude, God does seem like this angry, vindictive, vengeful, bitter, jealous type of father figure. And, and some of these accusations, man, I look at this and it may seem right. And so oftentimes you just kind of, you know, well, let me open up to John or something like that. <laughs> and you go somewhere else in the Bible and you skip these things. And, and so there is this real kind of fear and anxiety that exists in many believers and also the unbelieving world see some of these stories in the scriptures and they just go, there's, there's no way. Like, even if the Bible is true, they might say, how could you worship a God like that? Isaac Asimov, uh, the professor and science fiction writer, said, properly read, the Bible is the most potent force for atheism ever conceived. In other words, if you want to make someone truly an atheist, just have them read the Bible and all of it. Not just the nice stories, but have them read all of it. And you're on your road to atheism. So what we want to do uh, in this series is take a look at some of the most bizarre, difficult, disturbing passages in the Bible. So heads up, uh, here's your parental advisory warning. Um, I am not going to say anything that's not in the Bible. So you can't get mad at me. It's in the Bible. Um, but, fair warning, uh, there's some next level stuff in the Bible. There's some like pretty, pretty intense imagery. And if you want a preview of what that looks like, you can get the small group curriculum in the back or go online for a digital copy of the small group and you can kind of preview the weeks ahead as a parent, like if you're having a young one in here with you. Um, you know, you can, you can make the decisions for yourself. Now, I want to make it clear. I mean, we're not just looking at some of these difficult, like, violent, disturbing passages to be like, oh, look, look at how crazy these are. Like, these stories are in the Bible, which we believe is the word of God. So God, in his infinite wisdom, saw fit to make sure some of these stories that are incredibly bizarre to us, he saw fit to get them in there because they were important and they were saying something. And so what we wanna do is dig deep into these stories because at first reading, you're gonna be like, your response may be like someone who's out there and is a skeptic. You're like, this is whack, man. What is going on here? But one of the convictions that we have is that the Bible always knows what it's doing. The Bible always knows what it's doing. And so you just have to follow its lead. Trust it, even when it seems kind of weird or scary or bizarre, trust it and keep digging deeper. Now, a little bit of uh, setup for today. 
We're going to be looking in a story in the book of 2 Samuel, specifically chapter 21. And I just want to give you some kind of, a little bit of historical context that sets up the story. And then we're going to read the entire thing. Um, We're at the time, roughly a thousand years before the time of Jesus. It's the time of King David. And in this section in 2 Samuel, it's interesting because the last four chapters, 21, 22, 23, and 24, form like an an appendix to to the text. And so you have in 2 Samuel the life of David, and then you, after you have this kind of separate side literary unit that doesn't fit the cr- chronological order of the rest of the book. It's almost like, here's some other bonus stories that didn't make it in to the original cr- chronological flow. And so it's kind of abrupt. The time period of David's life, we don't exactly know. Um, he's, he's king in the story, but he's not old, so it's somewhere in that time period. Um, and it's again, it's a thousand years before the time of Jesus. King David is the second king of Israel after King Saul. Okay, here's the story. This may be a story you've, depending upon how long you've been a Christian, you might have never heard this. And my guess is that you've never heard this on a Sunday morning. We're going to read the whole thing and then go back. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Remember, Saul was the first king. David's now the second. God says there's blood guilt on Saul because he killed the Gibeonites. Verse two, so the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizba, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Brazali, the Mahalathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together, They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest. Then Rizba, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beast of the field by night. 
When David was told of Rispa, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them, on the day that the Philistines killed Saul of Geboah. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin and Zela in the tomb of Kish the father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea of the land. Okay, let me summarize that because that's a lot. There's a famine. God says it's because there's blood guilt on the land. Because the first king, King Saul, killed these Gibeonites. So David goes to the Gibeonites. What can I do to make it right? What, what, What can we do? And they're like, Uh, give us seven of Saul's sons. And what we're going to do is we are going to hang them out before the face of the Lord. We're going to hang them before the God of Israel. We're going to hang them up there, and after we kill them, then we're good. So David goes, okay, let me go capture the seven sons of Saul. You can do whatever you want to them. They're killed, likely in a brutal, horrific manner, and they are hung out before the Lord. And then it says... The famine ended. Now, here's the accusation. If you are skeptical towards the Bible, or you think the God of Christianity, the God of the Bible, is an angry, vengeful, kind of bitter, jealous God, you go, look at this story. How do you, how do you make this God happy? He's mad because someone did something over here. Well, why don't you offer up seven human sacrifices to him? Hang them up so he could see them because the God of Christianity is just like some, some sky God hanging up there and he looks down and sees these seven men hanging and he goes, okay, now the blood guilt is appeased. Let me bring the reins back to the land. Do you see that? And like, at, I'm, I'm, I didn't twist the story. Like that's straight up what it says. <laughs> They hang these seven dudes, they kill them, and then it says, God heard the pleas of the land. There's a bunch of other weird stuff along the way, but that is the accusation, and it appears, it it definitely at first reading appears, the God of the Bible is like any other ancient pagan deity. It's like they're filled with wrath and anger, jealousy and bitterness, and they are appeased by like offering up human sacrifice and you know, maybe later on the Christians learned over the next thousand years to kind of tone it down, but here's the, here's the real God of the Old Testament. Okay. What we're going to do is some, some detective work. We're going to have to figure out what's going on. And so all throughout this passage, there's been sort of like clues and hints of some deeper things going on, but you have to be like really, really... Uh, paying attention to the details. And one of the other things that you have to, to, to have sort of in your tool belt is a knowledge of the Old Testament. And so another fair warning, if you are new to Christianity, you're new to the Bible, um, today is gonna go really fast and we're gonna be all over the place and you're gonna have a hard time keeping up with like characters and time periods and where we're at here, where are we at here, that's okay. Like that's, that's normal. Part of the exercise in doing this is to demonstrate the more familiar you become with the Bible, the easier the Bible will become to to understand. Because the Bible is always referring to itself. It's always referencing itself. And so in one single story of the Bible, it might be alluding to, quoting to, touching on 20 other biblical stories. 
So like to understand one story, there's 20 other biblical stories that have already taken place that this new story is interacting with. And so that's part of the reason why uh, the Bible can be so difficult when you first get into it, is because it, it, it assumes a knowledge of other biblical stories. And that's why if some of you who, have, who are new to Christianity, someone might have, um, with very good intent, goes, oh, just start reading the Bible, which is good advice. You should start just reading the Bible. But then like you just started reading the Bible, and maybe you got through one or two books that were some of the easier ones to get through, and then you hit some and you're going, dude, I have no idea what's going on. Or maybe some of you have been Christians for two decades and you hit a certain book or a certain passage and you go, I have no idea what that's even trying to communicate. So uh, the Bible often has shallow waters for even children to swim in. And oftentimes there's water so deep that a mature swimmer can drown because it's just so deep. Okay. So with that, let's begin to sort of do some detective work in this story and see what's going on. The first thing I want to look at is Old Testament law, because the author of 2 Samuel assumes you know Old Testament law. Old Testament law is the law that God gave to Israel. He first gave it to Moses in a covenant, and he says, this is how my people ought to live. And so it was a direct agreement covenant with the people of Israel. Here's what the Old Testament says. Here's one of its laws, Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not put to death Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Okay, this is interesting, right? Because in the story, what did we have occur? You have Saul, who is guilty of something, we'll get to that in a moment, and then you have David trying to make it right. He goes to the the Gibeonites and they're like, no, let's um, take out the guilt of Saul upon his seven sons. And right off the bat, if you're familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, you go, that's not the way God's justice works. It's not the way God's justice works. Here's an example from the book of Kings where there is a king who actually puts this into practice. Uh, there's a king named Joash who is murdered by his own servants in this like, kind of deep conspiracy to overthrow him. When his son takes the throne he begins to execute all the people who killed his father, but the scriptures record this. But he did not put to death the children of the murderers according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, where the Lord commanded, fathers shall not not be put to death because of their children, nor children shall be put to death because of their fathers, but each one shall die for his own sin. So you see, way later, there's a king who has his father killed, And he's going out and killing his father's murderers, the king's murderers, but he doesn't take it out on the kids. Because it's written in the law. Deuteronomy, you don't do that. That's not the way God's justice works. Here's another verse, another law. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, does this sound familiar? His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is a cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So within God's law, even if someone is guilty of a crime, a murderer is executed, you still do not leave his body up even for a day. That, that defiles the land. It, it's dishonoring to God's law. Now, part of this deals with the fact that um, 
in the ancient world, and in many cultures today, and, and somewhat in ours, but not to the degree in the ancient world, in the ancient world at this time period, to give someone a proper burial was of utmost importance. So to let something hang and, and openly decay and have the scavengers come in, that's, that's an incredible disrespect to the entire family of that individual. It's shaming to the entire family, the whole people, the whole group. And so God says, we don't do that. We don't delight in this. You take a body, if, if you see a body, you bury it, you do right to it. And what happened in our story? It doesn't happen. Here's another one. From Numbers, the book, part of the Torah, the book of the law. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. And no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. You shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for, the Lord, for I the Lord dwell in the midst of the people of Israel. So you follow this. When there's a murder, there is, there's like a judgment upon the land. Things are not right when a human life is taken. And the answer to make it right is not to shed the life of another individual who is not guilty. You know, you might just say, well, of course, yeah, everyone knows that you only punish the person who committed the crime. Well, you've had 2,000 years of Christian tradition to influence your moral landscape. Like, back in the day, no, if some guy wronged me, why don't I take it out on his family? This man murdered my uncle, why don't I kill all of his sons? What's wrong with that? It's the Christian tradition that's saying, no, no, no. You don't just get to go randomly take it out on people. So already within this story, if you know the Hebrew scripture, you just know the law, you're going like, this didn't go down the way it should have, right? Just from a few verses in the law. So, so what the scriptures are inviting you to do, they're inviting you into a story and saying, there, things are not necessarily right with this story. And they're asking you to, to say, what's, what's going on? What's, what's the heart of the issue here? So let's continue down our list. So we looked at some of the Old Testament laws. Now I'd like to explore uh, David's motivation. Okay, this is interesting. Remember I said that this passage, for 2 Samuel 21, appears at the end of the book of Samuel, and it's part of its own sort of literary unit at the end. Uh, and we don't know exactly the chronology, like when do these stories fit in the life of David, but we know he's king and we know he's likely not old. Somewhere in the time in there. David's the second king of Israel, right? First king of Israel, Saul. Is David one of Saul's sons? So this is sort of the biblical history that you have to be familiar with. David is not a son of Saul. The, the, the throne, the crown, was removed from Saul because of the grave sin in his life, and it was removed from the house of Saul and given to David and his house. Normally, in a monarchy, what occurs? There's a king, and who gets to rule after him? The son. Okay. So if you're a son of Saul and your dad's the king, you're going, I, I gotta, I'm going to be the king, especially for the firstborn. You're like, I'm, I'm going to be the, the next king. Again, the, the, the crown is taken from Saul because of grave sin and given to David by God. But in normal circumstances, it should have gone to the son of Saul. Okay. Let's say you're David. Um, and there's an opportunity for you to take out the entire family line 
of your enemy. Would that be politically advantageous for you to do? Let's say, um, let's say things are going bad for you as the new king, politically and militarily. You've lost a lot of battle, battles. Uh, let's say there's a famine in, a, in the land. Let's say there's been a famine for three years and people in your kingdom are becoming very unhappy with the way the king's executing his rule and reign. And there might even be whispers like, this guy's not even the rightful king. We want the house of Saul back, not the house of David. Would it be politically advantageous for you in a time of political turmoil and upheaval, in a time of famine, to maybe take out potential threats to your rule and reign? Now you might be saying, no, no, Isaac, this is King David. He's not like that. Remember, he's a good king. David would never kill someone that might harm him. If David's neck's on the line, he'll do the right thing, right? So if you're familiar with the biblical stories, you know that at some point in David's life, likely around this time period, give or take several years, there is an incident between him and a woman named Bathsheba, and that ultimately ends with adultery and the murder of an innocent man in order to protect David's neck. So it's not outside the scope of David to do this at this point in his life. Now the text doesn't say that. So I'm not saying that that's what the Bible is saying. What I am saying is where where we're at in his life, it totally makes sense for him to be like, seven sons, political opponents, (sighs) I gotta take away the blood guilt from the land. Good idea, Gibeonites. It's possible, it's possible. Okay, now let's look at this weird mention of the Gibeonites and why Saul was so wrong for killing them. Hundreds of years before the time of David and Saul, Israel was led by a man named Joshua. Joshua is the successor to Moses. Moses was the leader, he dies, he gives the leadership to Joshua. And Joshua goes into Israel, and this small group of people called the Gibeonites hear of the amazing leadership and military power of Joshua and Israel. And so they're going like, dude, Joshua's got God on his side, man. We don't want to mess with him, so let's, let's trick him. What we are going to do is we are going to, it's actually kind of a funny little plot, I guess. It's, they, they pretend like they're coming from a far-off land. So they get like old clothes and old food, get like the moldy bread, the rotten cheese, and they come, we've heard of how awesome you are, Joshua. We've heard of your amazing military power. We are a people here to serve you. Make an oath to us today. We've traveled far and long to respect you. Make an oath for us today that you will not slay us, you will not kill us, you will not harm us. And so in Joshua it records this. They say, these wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are all worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of the provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live, and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. So it turns out the Gibeonites are actually like your next door neighbor in the story, but they just like, they played it so well. And Joshua makes an oath and a covenant, says, our people will never go to war with you, will never harm you, we are never going to kill you. Okay. Now, what's the clue in the text that like something's not right with this? Did you catch it? 
The Bible, see, the Bible always knows what it's doing. So this little hint, like, yeah, they made a covenant and an oath with the Gibeonites, but they didn't ask counsel of the Lord. So they get fooled. Joshua is fooled, and they make this covenant. Years later, we don't know the details, but apparently the first king of Israel, Saul, breaks this covenant, this oath, and he starts to annihilate the Gibeonites. And it almost appears as if there's an intent to completely wipe them out from the land. He's unsuccessful, but in in the process, he kills many Gibeonites. Now, let's jump to our story in 2 Samuel. There was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. In other words, God says, Saul has done wrong. He's done wrong. He's killed the Gibeonites. Then the king says, okay, let me go talk to the Gibeonites. David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Now this is subtle. It's very hard to catch. The Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. David, bro, it's cool. We don't need gold or silver. We're not trying to kill anybody. And then David almost, and and this this isn't explicit, but David responds almost with kingly-like oath language. Then what shall I do for you to make it right? And you could almost, like if it was a cartoon, you'd see the, like, you'll do anything? They said to the king, you know the guy who tried to kill all of us? so that we would have no place in Israel? Give us seven of his sons so that we can hang them before Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now at this point, David says, I've read the book of Joshua. I know the book of Joshua. You guys tricked Joshua and made him make a covenant and an oath that got him into some trouble. And I remember the Bible always knows what it's doing. So I, King David, will not do what Joshua does. I will consult the Lord and ask for wisdom on how to solve the problem of Saul's guilt. That's what the righteous King David does, right? No, the king says, you can have them. Take them. I'll give them to you, all seven sons. Now think about this. If you're one of Saul's sons, you're living your normal life. You might have been a child when Saul killed the Gibeonites. And all of a sudden, the king's men come in and take you. And trust me, you're getting roughed up along the way. And they take you to the Gibeonites. And trust me, you're getting roughed up there as well. And then you are condemned to die in a brutal manner. You're hung out before it says the Lord. They could have children, families. This horrific scene, a horrific scene of terror. And so you're almost meant to ask, like, is this how David treats his his enemies? Is this how David treats his enemies? Is this how David treats the children of his enemies? Because if you're familiar with the biblical story, you know that at one point in David's life, 
he treated his enemies in a completely different manner. If you're familiar with the biblical stories, how did David originally treat Saul? David originally would not do any wrong to his enemy Saul. And make no mistake about it, he was his enemy because what was Saul trying to do? Saul was trying to kill David. Saul sees David as the new up-and-coming kind of leader, so Saul's going and doing his best to kill David. But as Saul, the king of Israel, in all of his power and all of his might and all of his soldiers, is out hunting David, trying to take his life, David says things like this. He said to his men, the soldiers, David's men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. So at a prior time in David's life, before he was king, and Saul's trying to kill him, David says, I won't lay a hand against Saul. I won't do anything wrong to him. He, he, he was somehow even caring for his enemy. Now he does this because he knows that Saul used to be a good man and got caught up in grave sin. And he also knows that originally God appointed him to be the king. And now he's gone astray, but nevertheless, David's like, I won't harm Saul in the least of ways. And he orders his men, we're, we're not, no matter how much he tries to kill us, we're not going to do that. Listen to how David responds when he hears that Saul dies. A messenger comes and tells David of Saul's death. Saul dies in battle, along with his son Jonathan and some of his other sons. It says, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Saul's death means who, who's gonna be the up and coming king now? David. David doesn't celebrate. My former friend, a former man of God, a, a, a man who was initially appointed to do right but turn wrong, he has died and I take no pleasure in that. He weeps for Saul. He weeps for Saul's son, Jonathan. Why is that important? If Jonathan is a son of Saul, he's a future king. He weeps. He weeps for them. Uh, another sort of really interesting note that, that rhymes with everything that's taking place in our passage when Saul dies, he dies in war, in battle. And the people whom he dies to capture his body and his son's bodies, including Jonathan's, and they hang them from the walls of the city. Interesting little parallel, right? So Saul and his son are hanging from the walls. There's a group of men from a town called Jabesh Gilead who go on this like super secret mission to take down the decaying corpses of Saul and his sons. And they succeed. They burn their flesh and then put their bones under a tree. Just leave it there. Really weird, right? Remember how we said it's really important in the ancient world for proper burials? This group goes and rescues the decaying corpses of Saul and his sons who are decomposing on city walls hanging. And they don't give, they don't give them a proper burial. They just burn them real quick, but at least they're not hanging from the walls. They, 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 they burn them, and then they don't put them in the, um, 
in the, the grave of Saul's father, which would have been the proper burial. The proper burial would have been to take the bones to the rest of the family who has passed before them. So it's really interesting. Okay. So you have all these little clues, all these weird things, Old Testament laws, David's possible secret evil motivation. You have this contract with the Gibeonites where Joshua's fooled, and now David's possibly fooled. And now you have this kind of confusion because sometimes David cares for his enemies. And then sometimes he hands over the lives of seven innocent men who are the children of the guilty man. Now there's this last detail, super weird. This is actually the weirdest part of the story. And it was probably where some of you are like still focused on. You're like, okay, yeah, but let's get to that lady. Because there's a mother in this story. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beast to filled by night. Okay, who's Rispa? Rispa is a concubine of King Saul. She is a woman who was not afforded the rights and dignity of a wife in the house of Saul. Nevertheless, she bore Saul's children. And two of the seven sons that are hanged by the Gibeonites are her children. Other she would have been familiar with, but the two are specifically her sons, two of the seven. In a normal story from the ancient Near Eastern world, this woman isn't even mentioned. She is a concubine of Saul. Her sons are killed. What's the point of telling her story? Nevertheless, the Bible includes this woman who goes and defends the decaying corpses of her children from scavengers, from the birds. Now, you, we don't know exactly how long those bodies hung up there, but it's, 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 it's quite a while. It's likely a, a couple months, a few months. Can you imagine what this woman is doing? as she smells the decaying, rotting flesh of her children, as the bodies bloat, as they decay, she stands refusing to let the birds of the air get to the flesh of her children. In suffering and in agony, this mom never leaves her children's side. Even in her children's death, she refuses to leave their side. Now remember how important burials are in the ancient Near Eastern world. Men more powerful than she has, has has shown these people no respect, no dignity, no honor. In fact, there's ongoing shame to these men and to their families to let their bodies continue to hang. But you have the image of this persistent, unrelenting, faithful mother who day and night continues to fight off the scavengers. This is like one of the darkest images in the entire Bible. The heart of the broken mother doing whatever she can for her children who have been unjustly killed. Okay. There's a little bit more we have to do to understand exactly what she's doing. And it has to deal with this this emphasis on fighting off 
the scavengers, the birds of the air. Let's return to Deuteronomy, where it talks where we talked about God's law. When God makes an agreement with Israel, the covenant, it's called the Mosaic Law. He says, I'm going to give you these laws and these rules to follow, and if you obey them, you're, your life's going to be good while you live in the promised land. So if, if ethnic Israel obeys these laws, then life will be good for them in the land, in the promised land. But he says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, cursed shall you be in the field, cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. And so there's a big list in Deuteronomy that says, if you don't obey, as, you live in the, as Israel lives in the promised land, if you don't obey, all these bad things are going to happen to you. And there's these images of the curse, images of judgment. One of those images is an incredibly powerful image that deals with our story today. It says this, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beast of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. So this is an image of absolute destruction and, and annihilation. You're going to die, everyone that loves you will be dead, and there'll be nothing but dead bodies so that there's no one left alive who will frighten away the scavengers. So for the ancient Near Eastern mind, this is like the most horrific of images. You're dead, everyone's dead, and there's not anyone even around to fight off the scavengers. You don't get properly buried. Scavengers eat your decaying flesh. It's a grotesque, horrific image that says, this is the horror that will fall upon you. Because if scavengers are eating you, then you're being shamed by not giving the respect to burial. And again, in the, in the ancient Near Eastern world, this is like a big deal. For modern people, you know, it's a modern sentiment to say things like, hey, once I'm dead, it doesn't, it doesn't I'm, in, I'm in heaven, I'm dead, I'm not going to trip my body, you know? So, and that's true, you will be in heaven. But for the ancient person, you have to understand that the, the conceptual world, like this is a big deal. It's dishonoring to not just me, but my family. And that's another big thing that we're not familiar with. You know, in our culture, if someone insulted your great-great-grandfather, you're going like, I don't even know who he is. Ancient Near Eastern world, someone curses your great-great-grandfather, you might, you might go to war. So there's no respect to the family given when things aren't properly taken care of. And so now you have this image of the scavenger. Now this image is all throughout the Old Testament. Once you... Once you once you see this and you begin to read the Old Testament again, you will see the image of the raven or the crow or the vulture coming to eat flesh all over the place. It's like the standard taunt in the Old Testament. You might be familiar with the story of David and Goliath. What does Goliath tell David? I'm going to kill you and I'm going to let the birds come and eat your flesh. And then what does David say? You remember what David says? No, you got it wrong. I'm going to kill you and the birds are going to eat you, man. And this likely has its, this image of the birds eating the flesh, likely has its starting point way back in the beginning in Genesis. So in Genesis, there's a great big flood that occurs because there's judgment. And there's flood, there's waters cover the earth because of judgment. And Noah releases a bird. What's the bird that's famous in this story? 
the dove, right? But what does he release before the dove? At the end of the 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. And again, if you're familiar with the story, you know that when he sends the dove, it comes back. And then eventually it comes back with the olive branch. But the raven just goes to and fro. Why? It's an image of judgment. There's dead bodies floating. And the raven has surfaces to land on and a food source. So very early in the Bible, the image of the curse is being developed. The birds, the scavengers who come to eat the flesh. Book of Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is making a covenant with God and there's animals involved and the, the scavenger birds come to begin to eat some of the animal flesh and you see Abraham driving them away. It's a covenant of blessing and Abraham drives away the image of the curse which takes us back to the Deuteronomy passage. Listen to these words. This is, this is crazy, this is powerful. The image of the curse is this. Your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beast of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. But as the seven sons of Saul hang, there is someone to frighten them away. There is the persisting unrelenting mother who refuses to let the image of the curse to unjustly fall upon her children. Rispah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it over herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fall upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beast of the field by night. She's unrelenting She refuses to allow the image of the curse to fall unjustly upon her children. She stays there day and night, day and night. I'm staying here. Somebody better take these boys down. Somebody better take these boys down. I refuse to allow them to hang forever. She does this so long that people begin to notice her. And word actually gets to the king of this mother who refuses to leave the children's side. It gets word to the king. When David was told that Rispa, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul and Geboah. So remember that little backstory piece of information? Saul and his son Jonathan were also hung up on a wall. And not David, these men from Jabesh Gilead, they were the ones that went on the secret mission to recover the corpse. The men of Jabesh Gilead burned the decaying flesh and then they put the bones uh, right under a tree in their land. But they are not, Saul, he's not in the burial of his father. He's not where he should be. So again, in the ancient Near Eastern world, this is a great shaming to the house and to the family and to the father and to the children. So David hears what Rispa's doing and then he goes, I have something to do. I'm gonna go get the bones of Saul and Jonathan. And he also has more to do. 
He brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, so the seven sons, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin, in Saul's land, in Saul's territory, in Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father. That was the honoring thing to do, to bury you in the tomb of your father. And they did all that the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Okay. So, what was the original accusation given to this story? The God of Israel is some vengeful God. He allows innocent people to be sacrificed, and there's famine in the land that he brought, and then when these seven innocent people are sacrificed and put on a hill before the Lord, he looks on their hanging bodies and says, I'm not angry no more, now it can rain and the famine's done. That is your initial sort of reading. But if you know the Hebrew scriptures right off the bat, you know something's not right because God says in his law, a son shall not be punished for the sins of the father. And if you follow that thread and follow that clue, all kinds of other images start to pop up. And then you begin to realize what the story is about and you begin to see what's going on. This is a story of a faithful mother who refuses to let the image of the curse unjustly fall upon her children. And in doing so, by her example... She moves not only some of the locals, but she moves the king himself into action. And he then returns to his status, his his character that he he began at much more early in the story. Where he wouldn't kill his enemies, when he wouldn't shame them, when he honored Saul. And so now David begins to do this final honor to Saul and to Jonathan and to the sons of his enemy. He gathers all of their bones, returns them to their homeland, and puts them in the tomb of the father, thus showing great respect and honor even to his enemy and the children of his enemy. And here's the thing. When does it say the famine ended? Because what most people see when they read this story is like, all these dudes are hung up before the Lord and then God's anger goes away. After everything is righted. When everyone is in the tomb of the father of Saul, the last thing it says, and after that, God responded to the plea of the land. Did God respond when David handed over the sons to the Gibeonites? No. Did God respond when they were hanging? No. Did God respond when they finally perished? No. God responded after Faithful Rizba moved the king to right the wrongs in his past. Now, there's some more though. More. What should have David originally done? Uh, well, one, David should have been like, hey, Gibeonites, I'm not going to give you the seven sons because it's actually in the book of God's law that sons shouldn't be punished for the sins of their father. Here's a copy, you should read it. Or he could have at least, think about this, even when they were handed over and killed, at minimum, he should have not let their bodies hang. Or maybe, when they said, give us the seven sons of Saul, he goes, that's kind of a weird ask. I'm going to go consult the Lord. Because I read how Joshua didn't consult the Lord in important decision making. You ever do that, by the way? When you... when when you have an important decision or you know you're going to do something that you shouldn't do, that's when you don't consult the Lord. And it's not that you forget. You purposely don't go to him because you sort of know what he'll think and say. 
So David could have done all of those things, but here's something even crazier. What would be like the ultimate good thing to do in a moment like that? The first king of Israel sinned gravely, and now the second king of Israel shows up and says, what should I do? How can I make things right? Well, give us your enemy's children, his son, so we can kill them. The greatest thing that the king could have done in that moment is said, no, the king of Israel sins, the king of Israel will pay his debt. What would you have of me? And they may say, give us a bunch of money, or they may say, then we'll kill you. And the good king would say, may that judgment fall upon me and not them. Now at this point, you may be saying, Isaac, see what you're doing, you're trying to wiggle in Jesus here now. I'm not, I'm not. Because actually within the Hebrew scriptures, there's already a model for that. When there's judgment upon the people of God, the good righteous leader says, take me, not them. David has an example of this. Moses, the people of God worship the golden calf. God shows up, he's gonna bring judgment. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you are willing, forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that it is written. If you're not going to forgive them, take me. And so even within Jewish tradition, Moses and Abraham are considered more righteous than Noah. Because both with Moses and in Abraham's life, you have incidences where judgment's going to come upon them, and they stand in the way and say, God, no, no, can we do something different? It doesn't have to be like this. So David already has a model of what a good leader ought to do but you're going like, yeah, yeah, okay, I see it, but there's no way, let's just be real, there's no way a king is going to be like, okay, judgment is falling on my people, go ahead and kill me. Like, we can't expect that of King David. Okay. Last thing, of course we can. And the actual book of 2 Samuel is trying to get you to see that. Do you remember how I said the ending of 2 Samuel is sort of like, like an appendix where you have this kind of side literary unit, chapters 21, 22, 23, 24. It's this separate section that doesn't fit in the chronology of the rest of the book of First and Second Samuel. They're like stories that just get added in, but they're not just added in. They're there for a specific purpose. And we know that because those stories form a literary pattern. So the last four chapters of the book of Second Samuel form something called a chiasm. And Achaism is where there's a set of ideas introduced and they're repeated back in reverse order. And so if you look at this, 2 Samuel 21, 22, 23, and 24, there's three ideas introduced. There's a great famine in the land that lasts for three years and there's guilt on the land and it has to be righted. Then you get stories about David's mighty men of old, these heroes who go off to battle with David. And then you get a Psalm of David. And then you get those same three ideas repeated in reverse order. You get another Psalm of David, and then you get more stories about David's heroes, and then the book ends with not a famine, but with pestilence, not for three years, but for three days. And God's judgment is once again upon the land because of the sin of the king. So you follow this. So in each, the, each one of these things, the sections sort of mirror themselves, they reflect themselves. 
So A, famine, guilt, corresponds to A, pestilence, and then B with B and C with C, so that you're meant to read these stories in relationship. So you get this first story about a famine in the land and David offering up the sons of his enemy to do away with the famine that's lasted for three years. Now there's, at the end, another story, not of famine, but of pestilence, and not of three years, but of three days. And it's due because of the king's guilt. And God's judgment is going to fall upon the people. And what does David do in the last chapter of the book of 2 Samuel? Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I've sinned, I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. These sheep, don't harm them. Take me. These sheep, don't harm them. Take me. David learns. Now, does this sound familiar? Because there is another king of Israel who would say something very similar. Jesus, the true and final king of Israel, says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Earthly kings, evil kings, would offer up the lives of their sheep without thinking twice. The one true good king of Israel, the good shepherd, has the image of curse and death and judgment fall upon him so that you might be spared. Galatians 3, 13 through 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Christ died the cursed man's death on the cursed tree and takes the full weight of the image of the curse upon his back and into death he goes, verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that, my, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So the Bible always knows what it's doing. It always knows what it's doing. And in this, you see a picture, an image pointing forward to Christ, the good king, who doesn't allow the image of the curse to fall upon others, but he himself bears it completely. And he does so, so that the image of the curse will not ultimately overtake you. Because yes, one day you will die, and your body will go into the ground, and it appears like not the birds of the air, but the decomposing agents, the worms, and whatever else is in the ground is overtaking your body. But you will not be left in the image of the curse. Christ will raise you up just as he was raised. So we go down into the ground, not with permanence, but for just a moment. And on the last day, he raises you up. You will not be left to the curse. You will, you will be raised in power and glory and live with your good king for all time.